Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 14 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website in the world, the Mandolin Cafe. How's everybody doing? I hope you guys are doing great. This week's guest, Alan Bybee, 2019 IBMA Mandolin Player of the Year. Tons of great information. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. Um, first, let's do this here. Let's get to Peghead Nation, who's sponsoring this episode along with the Mandolin Cafe. This episode is sponsored by Peghead Nation with Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including beginning mandolin and intermediate bluegrass mandolin with Sharon Gilchrist, bluegrass mandolin jam favorites, and the advancing mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh, Monroe-style mandolin with Mike Compton, melodic mandolin tunes with John Reichman, chord melody mandolin with Aaron Weinstein, Irish mandolin with Marla Fibish, theory for mandolin and fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month free. Just go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. MANDOLINBEER, all one word, no S. Speaking of beer, this Thursday, I play every Thursday at a place called Dockery's on Daniel Island here just outside of Charleston, South Carolina, and they are unleashing, unveiling the uh, mandolins and beer-inspired beer, the Red Mandolin. It's a red IPA, and we're using a little play on play on words from the movie The Red Violin, but I'm excited to try it. So I want to thank Dustin and Grayson and all the folks at Dockery's. So that's exciting news this Thursday. I'm stoked for that. It's like a dream come true for a beer guy. Um, what else is going on? The hats, there was a little error with the size of the patches on the hats, so new hats are coming. They will be here any day. I apologize for the delay. But you can still go to mandolinsandbeer.com and get shirts, stickers, and koozies. Of course, you can always um, go there and follow the Spotify link and follow the playlist, which is growing by 12 or 13 songs this week um, after this episode. And... Uh, you can also please follow me on Instagram, Mandolins and Beer, and Facebook, Mandolins and Beer as well. Let's see what else is going on. Next week, I will be talking a little bit about something going on in Nashville in December with a couple previous guests. I'm really, really looking forward to that. Speaking of previous guests, congratulations to Caleb Edwards, by the way, who did a killer version of one of his tunes on Mandolin Mondays this week, David Benedict's in Mandolin Cafe series. And uh, speaking of David Benedict, congratulations to David for a job well done on his Mandolin book for the Golden Angle. Holy cow. I don't know if you guys ordered it or not, or if you've looked at it, if you did order it. He did such an incredible job. The the notes the the for the songs and just all the work he put into it, it you can tell he loves what he does, so... If you didn't get it, be sure to get it. Go to his website and grab one. But congratulations, David. Uh, thanks for putting in all the work. It's it's a it's a brilliant piece of art. So way to go, buddy. Next week's guest on the podcast is Mike Gugino from the Steep Canyon Rangers. Great player, great guy, great conversation. And last but not least, thank you guys again so much for uh, listening. Please subscribe if you haven't done so on whatever platform it is that you're listening on. And if you haven't uh, followed me on Instagram or Facebook, I'd really, really appreciate it. If you're on either one of those platforms, if you would just go over and follow me on either one of those, it would be much appreciated. So thanks again. Let's get to this podcast with Alan. And you guys have yourselves a great week. Cheers, everyone. <laughs> All right. Now I'd like to welcome to the podcast 2019 IBMA Mandolin Player of the Year, Alan Bybee. Alan, how are you, buddy? Doing great, Daniel. Good to be with you, man. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm glad we uh, glad we got to work it out here. You're a you're a busy guy too, so I appreciate you taking the time to do this, man. Sure, glad to, glad to do it. So first off, let's start with that. The 2019 IBMA Mandolin Player of the Year. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. That's I, uh, really. Uh, Unexpected. <laughs> I, I I can't believe you hadn't won it before. To be completely honest with you, well, I appreciate it. Every, every I've heard, I've had a lot of nice comments about it. I sure do appreciate it. That's great. And were you and were you down there for the awards too? Then to, were you there to accept it? Yeah, or up yeah, there, I, was. I should say. Yeah, that's yeah, great, man. 
Yeah, yeah. how ex- how exciting is that? It's really cool, man. I mean, I've you know, I've won uh, other Alabama May awards for either band stuff or collaborative efforts or recorded event of the year stuff I've done with a lot of other people before, but uh, but never I never unless I, unless I was nominated at some point when I was with Third Time Out, which I don't I don't recall being nominated. I don't think I'd ever been nominated before this year. Wow. That's crazy to me. Well, congratulations as well. It's well earned. Oh, uh, thanks. I appreciate it. You man. bet, man. Yeah, you've uh, you've worked hard. You've been you've been um, you know just your your credits alone are staggering to look at. So you know it's an honor to be able to talk to somebody that's had so much experience and so much success and continuing to do it. So thank you again. Oh man, thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. You bet. And and you're headed on a a bluegrass cruise. You were saying here coming up. Yeah, we are. We've been hard at it all year, and uh, we get to go on this bluegrass cruise now and just play. I think we got to play like three times the whole time, the whole time, the whole week we're on the cruise. So it's kind of uh, a little bluegrass, a little vacation too. So all my all the family's going. So that's pretty good. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah, that's great, man. Is this the first time you've done like one of these cruises? No, that's actually like how we got started. I I didn't at uh, twenty years ago. I think when we made one of our first bluegrass cruise, and I didn't. I didn't think I, I didn't think I would really be a cruise guy. I didn't think I would like it, and it turns out me and my wife love them. So oh, we just started, that's great. We started going on them. We did three or four or five bluegrass cruises, and then we started just taking the family and going, just not even playing on them. And I hadn't played on one in quite a while. And this uh, Larry Efall hit me up about doing this one, uh, till probably ten months ago. When we, and it's, uh, we've been to so many places. This one has some pretty cool stops that we've never been to, so we thought it'd be a, a great uh, family vacation too. You know. Yeah, that's great, man. And who? What other bands are? Uh, what other bands are playing on that with you? Uh, I know Larry Efall's band's playing on there, and also Jeff Parker that used to play with Daily Vincent, his new band's playing on there. And I know there's some other people I'm forgetting. There's quite a few bands, but. Uh, it should be fun time. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's go back in time a little bit. How did you um how did you start playing mandolin? What's your where's your journey begin? Uh well I was uh my my dad, I think he when he started dating my mom when he was sixteen or seventeen and he had always he said he'd always wanted to play music and they I, him him and my grandpa on that side, they really they loved bluegrass music, but none of them played. Mm-hmm. So uh all of her brothers played bluegrass. So once he got dating her i guess they he kind of fell in with them and started playing mandolin with all her brothers and back when i was growing up back in the you know the foothills hills of uh, north carolina at that time in the gosh early 70s i guess there was a there had these things like every week called a fiddler's convention i know everybody's heard of galax fiddler's convention but but there were but there was there was one at a schoolhouse within a three or four you know probably two or three hour radius like Almost every weekend, every you know, every other weekend, I would I would suppose anyway. So so that's um, I'm sure I was going to those things, you know, before I was born. <laughs> right. but, uh, but I I remember going to them when I was uh, you know before I ever started playing, and I started playing when I was five. I remember seeing wow. Wes Golden and Jimmy Arnold and Tony Rice and all those guys at some of those fiddlers conventions when I was you know I guess maybe two or three or four years old. I just remember seeing those guys. Wow! No um, kidding. Yeah, so I was definitely into it. But my dad took me, when I was five, he took me to see uh, Bill Monroe, uh, the next town over from where I grew up in Walnut Cove, is Walker Town. And I remember he uh, was playing on the, the bed of a flatbed truck man. <laughs> he was just and my dad so many people there my dad had to hold me on his shoulders you know for me to see the show but i just remember like i was just so tore up with it at you know at five and on the way home i said man that's what i want to do oh wow and that's I, so we, cool i know we went to the bedroom and he, he like showed me a chop cord and he said i started chopping right in time right away which kind of sounds impressive but probably by that time i'd heard so much music it probably probably was not as near as impressive as it sounds. <laughs> no, um, at five years old, man, that's, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> so at that point, we started playing. You know, we started playing, and then uh, my dad always wanted to play the banjo. So he told me when he said, "Man, when you get when you get better than me on the mandolin, I'm just gonna start playing banjo." <laughs> nice. So so when I was when I was, I remember it was when I was eight, he said, "Well, you're better than me." He said, "So I'm just gonna." 
start playing banjo. So he did, and we we got a little band together with my cousin and some other guys. And he finally taught me going in competing at one of those fiddle conventions when I was eight, and I won third man third manlin at the first one I went to, and I won five bucks. I won five bucks, and I was like, man, yeah, this is the <laughs> ticket right here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so from that point on, that was all I, other than play ball of some kind, all I did was play music back, you know, and, and just uh, try to get better for the next competition or whatever. You yeah. Know? What were you listening to to uh, to work yourself up for those competitions? Was there any particular albums or any tunes that were blowing your mind? One thing that was cool about those as a uh, – those uh, competitions were to me that I think really helped me later on is that even though you're most of them that you were being uh, uh, judged on your individual playing, but you would still within with within a band format. Oh, so okay, cool. It wasn't most of them. You wouldn't just play in just, a, I wouldn't just prefer playing a flashy mandolin tune or something. You know, most of the time it, it was, it was, we played three tunes within the band, you usually played a couple of vocal tunes and then a instrumental and everybody was, so you kind of got experience playing in a band and how to play in a band. Oh, that's, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So that's, but I mean, there were a few that like Galax where you go up and just could play one tune and also you compete in a band competition separately. But most of them were like what I just, what I just said. And uh, so um, I was just listening to, you know, I, first I got into Monroe real heavy. And then those guys were te- like the guys my dad played with. None of those guys knew any theory or anything. So mm-hmm. I mean, they just knew what sounded right. So I had, I kind of learned all that backwards, but I had a, also had a cousin, uh, that, um, has been living down here at the beach for 30 years now, but my dad also taught him to play before me. He's five or six years older than me or three or four years older than me. Uh, and, um, he had already been out at this time, but this time he was 15 or 16. He was playing semi-professionally with a group called Boot Hill. They were the first band to record steel rails. Oh, wow. No kidding. Yeah, that like Louisa Branscombe, who is still around, boy, rats a lot. She's uh, she's the one wrote that. She was in that in that group, so they were the first one to record that. And he was really good, and he became a really good mandolin player by that time for his age. I mean, he was a really incredible musician. So he come back and taught me a lot of stuff, like just techniques stuff. That thank goodness I had somebody to give me a little, you know, a little help with that kind of stuff because there's no telling what I would <laughs> what I ended up as kind of technique technique. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but he turned me on to a lot of cool music too, like. Uh, well, first, my dad, I remember dad, my dad taking me to, you know, a few years later, taking me to Camp Springs to see J.D. Crow, who he's wanting to go see. And just so happened, he had Tony Rice and Ricky Skaggs playing with him. I've been working out in the rain, tied to the dirty old ball and chain. You know, so it just blew my mind, you know, totally. So I was hooked after I was totally hooked after that. That's that's when I really started playing, you know, like all the time. When sure, I was, sure. You know, 10, 10 or 11 years old, I started playing a lot of hours. I mean, a ton of hours. Cause I was just so into it. And then my my cousin who I talked to about you know, just a minute ago, he t- turned me on to Boone Creek when Skaggs left. He kept me up. He was out kind of in the bluegrass festival circuit. So he kept me up on with what was, who would, what was going on? Like Boone Creek had formed, you know, when Skaggs and Douglas uh, left JD Crow and stuff. So. Shiver 
that that band really did it for me too so I, that's I, I good really, stuff man i wear out those records man <laughs> yeah i bet so wild to think about like how you're you know like with the internet that you have now it's so easy to hear about anybody you know what i mean because it's just like pops oh, up I know. and but back in the day you had to have you had the hookup with your cousin who's going to these shows and telling you about like all these incredible things that's so great yeah i'll never i mean i'll never forget when he come and told me because I was so into that first Boone Creek album and their and their music because it was just really, it's like you know Skaggs back then was playing that real jazzy style and he was doing these Monroe licks that sound like Monroe on steroids or something. I mean, it just like it just it just that that the way he mixed up his breaks with different styles, it really just hit me. So I, when he, I remember my cousin came in and told me that they broke up. I was just like, I was depressed for a little while. But, <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet. But you're right. Back then, you had to depend on somebody. Now you can find out anything what, what happened yesterday. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or today. Yeah, yeah. Which is good and bad, I suppose. You know, it's right. You know, right. I, I wish I had somebody steering me towards better music when I was younger. That's for sure. But yeah, you know, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, so then, when did you decide? Like, when did you start? Um, really just like i mean you loved music and kind of knew when when what did you put that into action what did that look like did you move did you stick around there and put a band together uh well i'd yeah i'd played uh well uh, speaking of that i was playing uh, so i was continuing to just play those really to play those contests and play with different people all over the place i started playing i think maybe when i was f maybe 14 uh there was a band called interstate exchange that later became summer wages uh, some of the older people may remember that band so it had great, some great musicians in it but That's fine down down in Chattanooga Where kitty trains up and down the track There's an old black hound with his tongue hanging down And he chases a train down the track I've been chasing you like a Chattanooga dog, even though I know you don't care. I've been chasing you like a Chattanooga dog, and ain't gonna get me nowhere. Uh, by the time I joined the band, it was Barry Barrier, Barry Barrier, who used to play with uh, Lost and Found and some other people. He's a great singer from Mount Airy area. Uh -huh. But I started playing, so they asked me what I, yeah, they considered playing with them, and said so they were started. That's when I first got getting out a uh, kind of regional getting up after you know different states and stuff playing some shows with them that wasn't contest weren't contests anymore and um then after uh shoot then pretty soon after i joined them their banjo player quit and sammy sheeler who was two or three older years older than me and lives lived about 30 miles north of me in stewart virginia he uh, started playing the band, so he he had to come pick me up thirty <laughs> minutes down the, to, to come pick me up before we could go play. I know, he, I know, he enjoyed that. <laughs> but, uh, but we got to do a lot of cool things. Me and him went and seen the original uh, David Brisbane Quintet together. You know, when we were teenagers and stuff. I mean, so we got to do a lot of cool things. He's still a, a dear friend of mine. So, but but anyway, after that, I ended up playing. After Boone Creek broke up, I ended up playing in a band with Wes Golden, who was the lead. One of the you know one of the lead singer and songwriters in in Boone Creek, which right. was really really cool for me to to do that. And so we played you know some some pretty cool shows. And then that's how when I was I guess eighteen or just turned nineteen maybe, mm -hmm. um, we went and played a show in in uh, in Virginia at in uh, with the uh, Wes. And uh, at the time, Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, the original band, was pretty much together except for Lou Reed. I think it started playing with Ricky Skaggs. But um, so Terry Balkum and Jimmy Haley walked in, who were in the original band. And I knew they were friends with Wes, but I didn't know that those three had just kind of separated from Doyle. Oh, gotcha. So, yeah. And they caught to So I didn't. That's a gig that I never even expected to be offered because at the time they were the top band in Bluegrass. And so they, they approached me that night and asked me would I be interested. And at the time, I think I was going, I was playing with Wes and going to school and working a job. <laughs> oh, and I ended up quit, I ended up quitting all of it to go play with them. Wow, no kidding. I, yeah, I, I would have too. <laughs> That's awesome, yeah. man. What a yeah, yeah. So that, that was that, that was a band called the New Quicksilver, and we lasted for about three years. And then, uh, yeah, and then the guy. So I got a lot of a lot of people. I think. Uh, because of all the ties to Doyle, I think I've played with Doyle, but obviously 
play in Manlin. I, I didn't play with Dole. Right, right. <laughs> right. So, um, but the the guys that went with Dole right after that, when when that breakup happened, happened was Russell Moore mm-hmm. and uh, Scott Vestal and those guys. So, a couple of years after New Quicksilver broke up, Russell and uh, Ray Deaton and Hart, Mike Hartgrove called me and asked me what I consider starting a band with them. So. I, and we did, and we uh, that was third. That was the start of third time out in like 1989. My name you will find on the tail of my shirt. I'm a Tennessee hustler, never do work. Kiss a different woman with the drop of each do. Always singing things good woman blues. Good woman blues, Lord, you never nice. need. Oh, 1989. That is, wow. Oh, that's, it's, you know, stuff sounds timeless when you listen to it. I mean, you know, that's, it's great. I, I still listen. The first time, I think the first time I ever heard a break of yours was the version of uh, Thanks a Lot. Uh-huh. And that, I thought I was going to crash my car. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it's just like cruising along, and then it's just like that warp speed lick, and then it modulates. I, I was like, what was that? It's so <laughs> cool, man. Oh, thanks, so man. I cool. appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then how many? Uh, how long were you with Third Time Out for? Uh, I think about uh, three or four years, something like that. Yeah, we mm-hmm. did. I did the first two albums with them. And then that's when I moved to South Carolina down here, and I started playing at uh, the Carolina Opry, or really it was offshoot of the Carolina Opry called uh, Southern Country Nights. And then I played at the Carolina Opry for a little while too before I went back out on the road. It was just, uh, it was good to, to be able to be home for a while and make some and uh, make some steady money and everything. But uh, sure, I guess I'd already been on the road so long. It, I just like, you know, and being nothing against those places at all, but I'd always been trying to be creative and when you play at those kind of at those kind of shows it's just you're just you're copying stuff you know like which is which is cool yeah nothing wrong with that for sure but yeah, uh, i completely understand as somebody like yourself who's obviously creative and driven there's just you just different yeah different path yeah. for you you know yeah yeah so and it's and i mean it's it's obviously tough but i mean um, sure so that's when we uh, we kind of got the uh, I played one summer with Lou Reed in Carolina and, and recorded an album with Lou Reed. And then um, the following year, we start we really re- reunited the new Quicksilver band and called it Blue Ridge. And then it morphed into what it did. Uh, we lasted about 10 years and by the last three or four years of that it was me and junior sisk and uh, uh eddie bigger staff and some and some other guys and then uh, then that's when um phil ledbetter and uh, steve gully had called me and asked me would i would i consider starting a group with them and uh, it was kind of just the right time for to do it so uh we we started uh, grass town and that's been 12 years ago in grass town and uh it's uh we're probably doing the best we've ever done it's been a great year for us yeah yeah you got a brand new album 2019 yeah, came yeah. out so and that's been yeah. you uh, had a couple number ones already yeah we re- re- yeah we released uh, a single almost probably 10 months before the album came out and it was i think it was a, it was on the in the top 10 for 34 weeks holy and cow that's great number one for like 13 or 14 weeks and then when that one fell out the second single came in and it i think it may have 
and it may have been number one quite as many times, but it's been it's still in the top ten. It's and I think it's around forty weeks now. It's been in the top ten. It's number three this week, I think, still called uh, when Jesus swings the record ball. If sin is your mortar, then the devil is your mason. He's raising you a dark castle wall. Remember, you're building on Lucifer's foundation till Jesus swings a wrecking ball. So we're just really super excited now because usually, usually I, we really went into it with this expect, expectations of just doing it really as a labor of love because you know, I just didn't think that uh, gospel albums would get as much play, sure. as a as a all uh, bluegrass album. So, but it's turned out to be our probably most successful <laughs> successful album. So, yeah, that's great when it's like a labor of love, like you said too. You know, and it's kind of like, well, you wanted to do it, and I think that sometimes that's what kind of shows and why people buy it because. I mean, yeah. you know, you put it out because you wanted to put it out. It wasn't something like you had, like, oh, we'll just do this because we have to. You know, you put it out there right. with, with your heart. And yeah. It's being, I think it's being recognized as such. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, uh, it's really kind of astounding how, how, how well it's done. But we sure do appreciate everybody's uh, support. It's been a great, great year. How long, uh, yeah. how long did you work on that album for? Gosh, uh, probably, probably. Off and on for probably about ten months. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but I'm, I know I'd love to put albums out more, you know, more often. But I just, I just really want. I really try to get, you know, I really want to have all the songs on the album to be really strong as I as I can. And it's oh, hard sure. to, you know, to put out really strong albums that that far, you know, that close together. It is for me anyway to to help write and find them, you know. Yeah. I, well, and some people should, I mean, some people should kind of wait. Sometimes I think, you, you know, sometimes you have a band just keep throwing yeah. stuff out there and you're like, oh, that's, I mean, it's all right. <laughs> but yeah, right. You know, right. But I kind of, you know, I, mean, I look at it. Well, I looked at guys when I was growing up. That's kind of their legacy. I mean, you know, so you don't want, you don't want to leave something that you're going to go back and listen to and go, man, I really wish I had done that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of people always, uh, you know, back in the day would always, you know, look down their nose at record labels or producers and be like, yeah, they're just holding people back. I'm like, ah, sometimes you need somebody to hold you back. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No <laughs> you need somebody to be like, you know what, this, you guys are better than this, you know? Yeah, yeah so, exactly. Uh, yeah. And, and then um, you put out your solo album, which is, again, another album where I really, you know, really, really was drawn to your playing in the blue room. Oh, um, thanks man. Is is so good. And I'd love to talk a little bit. I'd love to talk a little bit about that with you. Um, you know, sure. the, the writing and the recording and, and different things yeah. like that. So, um, the first thing I love, uh, you know, the very first track in the blue room. Always reminds me, and and I was listening to it this weekend when I had to drive down to Florida for a wedding, and I was listening to it in those breaks in there where it like stops and you put the licks in right near the end. It reminds uh, me of when you're watching baseball and you see somebody throw like three fastballs and then they throw this nasty, you know, curveball and you're just like, whoa, <laughs> that was awesome. You know, you just didn't see it coming. That's what that song always reminds right. me of, man. It's so great. Oh. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what was the inspiration to finally, you know, you've been playing all these, these great bands and um, what was the inspiration to put a solo album out? Uh, well, you know, at, you know, speaking of that, I grew up when in the age I grew up, they're just, the, you didn't, you didn't see all the the solo albums like you do today. Right. So right. I'd always grew up with the, with the mindset of being a band guy. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to be a band guy. So I never, I didn't think about it at that time, but that just so happened when I was uh, about 16, I guess, I met Ronnie Bowman, who most bluegrass people would probably know from the Lost River Band back in the day in mm-hmm. the 90s. Back back in that time, us and and third third time out in the Lost River Band were pretty hot, and you know when when those bands first started. Sure. And uh, so we were we were just uh, we got to be best friends, and uh, when we were teenagers, 
And uh, he'd always, he'd, he went on and played with the North River Band. And I'm not sure if he still was at that time. I don't think. I, maybe he was. But anyway, he he just did. I seen him one of the festivals, and he was like, man, you need to just do your do your solo album. And I thought, I said, well, I've really never thought about it. And he said, well, he said, if you'll do it, I'll I'll produce it. Oh, wow. I'll, I'll, and everything. And, I'll, and uh, I'd be glad to help you, you know, do anything you need to do. So that's how that came about. So uh, he got. We called Barry Poss, and they they were they were all for it at Sugar Hill, and uh, me and Ronnie got all the song the songs together, and uh, the people the folks together, some of our favorite players and stuff, and uh, recorded up at Tim Austin's old studio in Virginia. No, it's kind of a it's kind of a legendary studio. The the first one burned down, Doobie Shea up there, but uh, this, the the whole everything that come from that studio was really good. Tim Austin was in, incredible. That's great, man. And you do the uh, another song on there that is just stellar is Evening Prayer Blues, the Bill the Bill Monroe song. Yeah, that's just, one of my that's one of my faves. That's, that's uh, such a great song. I appreciate it. that. That was my, that was the last one for the album. Oh, was it really? Was, uh, yeah. My dad was down here at the beach and I think he went to like, to the, uh, so it's flea market or something. And he brought back his, that master of a bluegrass cassette that tells you ah, how nice. long it's been. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was listening to it. I was in the shower, like, you know, and I kept fast forwarding through the songs. Yeah. I've heard, I mean, they're all great, but I was like, I've heard like, those, you know, a lot. I heard that a lot. And I got to that one. And at that time I hadn't heard that tune very much and it's so crooked anyway you know that you know it's it's really weird i thought man that's awesome and it was i know bill monroe's cut is like he had he must have had three or four manlins going on at different times <laughs> so I, I just tried to break it down from one channel to the other and tried to get it as close and try to play the parts because he twinned himself a little bit on, on the end kind of like i did but i just tried to make my, my, my own version of or you know, kind of of what he he did. So uh, it was it was a lot of fun, and I I, I always love that tune. Oh, that, yeah, it's a great one. Yeah. Well, so how long? So you just like how long before you recorded it? Did you start working up a version of it? Uh, probably not 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 long. Just a, <laughs> maybe probably a couple of days. Oh maybe, wow wow yeah. yeah that's not long at all. That's um that's awesome. No. Yeah wow, that's I mean it sounds like one of those ones that you've been probably playing since you were a kid. That's <laughs> yeah. So nice. That's what I never I know yeah I never played that one. Oh, nice, man. And then you do a couple, is there a couple Herschel Sizemore songs on there as well? Yeah, Herschel had come up, uh, he had been at, uh, I'd got to know Herschel pretty well at that time, and at that time, he owned like five lures. Whoa. Lower man, land, more, yeah, man, it was awesome. So I got to <sighs> hang out with him and play his lures. I played one of his lures on a project in like 97, the, maybe the first Blue Ridge project or something, or second one. And then that's when I, I right after that, I bought my lure. In like uh, '97, maybe. So maybe I played in '96 or something. But um, so Herschel came up and he was like showing me these tunes, and I was like, oh, "Man, they're great." And he said, well, "Y'all record them, man. I'm never going. To, I'm never going to record them." And I said, "Well, if you're not going to, I might do it." And, yeah. Uh, so, so I ended up. I did record them, and I, but after that, I think he recorded them, and it came out before my recording did. Ah. But but it, but man, that I mean that's that's too cool. That's cool anyway. Yeah, I just love absolutely. Herschel. Oh, what We're a great, great buddies. What a great player too. What a guy. That guy's got such a great knack for writing tunes, man. He does, and he's you know, man. I think he may have been, if not the first guy, definitely one of the first guys to ever that I ever heard anyway. Because I know he's doing it back in the fifties, from what I from the stuff I can listen to. Way, way before I was born, he was playing those fiddle fiddle notes on the mandolin that you just didn't hear in bluegrass. You know, Monroe wasn't playing the fiddle notes like you know, like that. And I know Bobby Osborne started kind of did too, but I think they came along pretty close to the same time. And you know, Herschel just his playing is just so clean, and and he's always played with such great tone. I think he was, uh, you know, I think sometimes people forget, you know, that he was like the he may have been the the link between, you know, the that 
older generation and what's playing been played today. Right, right. Know? Well, that's a good that's a good point. I've never had anybody make that reference on here yet. That's pretty. That's really interesting because you know it's funny. It's the first time I think I ever heard a uh, Herschel Sizemore tune was um, uh, uh, Thiele and Brian Sutton playing a version of Rebecca somewhere. Oh yeah, and I was like, uh-huh. whoa. How, what is this? And they were like, oh, this has kind of become a new standard. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, it really never is. Heard the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's really, really cool to to have something come up like that. So definitely. So and then, um, so you have let's 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 talk gear while we're talking about lores, um, yeah. if if you don't mind. How, so you got your lore in in '97. Yeah, '97. But you also have a signature model too. I do. Yeah. Through Gibson. Yeah, I do. I've got. Uh, three of those. Oh, my, no kidding! Uh, like, yeah, but I got one that's a varnish model that I really like that I play that I play some too. Sure. So, how does that come about? You're the first person I've spoken to who's got has got a signature mandolin. So, uh, how did that? How does something like that come around from Gibson? Yeah, that was just one of those things, you know. <clears throat> especially for me, like you know, again, I'm telling my age, but when I was growing up, when I did, Gibson was the name. Right. I mean, you know, now now there's great builders everywhere absolutely but uh back then that was just it and you wanted a gibson i mean that's just the way it was back then you know so um anyway getting to play with all the people i'd played with up to that point and uh i was really good friends with danny roberts who was at get gibson and i just remember one one year at um at um ibma in louisville um i guess it must have been 2002 maybe something like that Mm -hmm. uh he approached me about about doing it, and uh, I said, well, "He said we'll let you design it, everything. Wow. You know, you you can come up with your own design if you don't like it. We'll make one. If you don't like it, we can change it and do, you know, whatever whatever you want to do with it." And I said, "Wait, I said I'll I, that'd be great. I mean, that's a you know that's that's incredible." I said, "But you know, I don't want to. I always try to be really straight up. I'm like, you know." No matter what what I do, I'm not going to quit playing this old this old mandolin because I love this lore. Oh you yeah, know? <laughs> absolutely, man. So I just wanted to be like, I'm not going to. I can't lie to you and tell you I'm going to do that. He's like, No, man, it doesn't matter if it's a Gibson. It don't it doesn't matter. So that that's so I I signed the same deal from what they told me. I signed the same deal for endorsement like as Earl Scruggs did and uh, everybody else, J.D. Crow and everything. So it was wow. uh, it was a lot of fun getting to design. Your yeah. own mandolin. At the at the time, they didn't make they didn't use the old flower pot like it was in the Lords. They didn't use that during that time. So I kind of made the, all the design of the mandolin, the look of it, all different. But I brought back the old the old uh, kind of uh, throwback to the old flower pot for that for that mandolin. So yeah. it had some old, some new, and some and and then that that part of the old mandolins too. So, but that was just a that was a blast and kind of surreal. And they're kind of you know signing your name that was going to a thousand times for them to put it on the, <laughs> uh, on the mandolin and stuff. So that was cool. And then then one of the co- coolest things about it, the whole thing was I got they asked me I think I was coming going to town for Spigma, and they asked me what I come do an autograph signing. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I could do that. Who you know, like who's going to be there? Who's going <laughs> right, right. to be the other cats there? You know, and they, they said, well, it's going to be JD Crow. And uh, Josh Graves, it would be the and uh, no, I don't think it was just the, just just those and Earl Scruggs. Oh, cool! And I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I I can do that. I don't know that anybody would want my my autograph amongst those cats, <laughs> but yeah, man, that'd be awesome. So I went and I stole the sign and everything when we got done. Oh, you know, good so for you! Sign, you know, about that it was a that was a cool career moment right there oh man that is so cool how many yeah. how many uh mandolins did they like did they do like prototypes for you before you um before they decided on it did you go through a couple of them or did they nail it right yeah. away they pretty much nailed it right away we decided we would just want the first one's a little bit lighter than the red the prototype's a little bit lighter but we we decided just go with just a little darker finish mm-hmm. so I, I still have the prototype and then a couple of the newer ones, uh, the the ones that, that one of the fifty, because they made fifty in that run. They did a few different artists, you know. That that uh, was me and uh, Adam Steffi, maybe and Wayne Benson, I think. And, oh, that's right, Wayne Benson too. Yeah. Uh, I think the others like Sam and Ricky. I don't think that was just limited to fifty. 
And maybe and Dole, Dole Lawson too. I think his maybe just have been a fifty run. So uh, that was that was a good time and for Gibson and everything too, because that was back in the Charlie, Charlie Darrington era too. You know. Oh right, right, yeah. He's the guy that put Monroe's Manlin back together, and he was the he was responsible for bringing back the, you know, making the Manlins like the Lores. Right, know? right, yeah, because they definitely had a uh, they had a, a a run there where, you know, they they weren't necessarily. You know, right. The thing to yeah. have as they were before, they've really made a huge comeback. Yeah, they really did. Which is so, great. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. What kind? Of, what type of uh, strings and picks and such? I use. Uh, I've been. I've been using uh, the Dario strings for uh, almost thirty years now. I've. Uh, well, one of our first gigs with Third Time Out, we played in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at Chili Cookoff, and. Uh, us and Rice were out there because I think me and Wyatt and Scott Vestal stayed up for two days playing music. I think. Oh, nice. Uh, in a hotel room uh, when we weren't on stage. But I went. I went over to the the Dario booth and Peter DiDario was there, and I got the, their endorsement for the band, and that just uh, carried over. And I've had it for all all these years. That they've been super great to me. And uh, for picks, I use uh, usually I I'll use anytime I'm recording, I'll use the tortoise shell pick. Um, but when I'm, uh, playing out, I've been using these Dunlop picks, uh, cause I like the wear of them. Mm-hmm. They're, they're kind of cheap picks. They're like a 1.5 millimeter, but I've went through a bunch of different, um, uh, of uh, the blue chip picks. And I think I finally found one that I like, uh, the guy there, I can't even remember. I'm it's terrible. I can't remember his name right now. But the guy that runs Blue Chip Picks gave has gave me quite a few of those, and he gave me one gave me one at, at IBMA that was uh, really close really close to what I've been using. So I think I'm gonna I'm gonna try to stick with that one when I'm on the road. Oh, nice! What uh, what shape do you know the? It's a yeah, it's um, it's kind of rounded because I always use the I always use the shoulders of the pick. Oh, okay, cool, yeah. When I'm playing lead, anyway, sometimes I'll chop with the with the pointed end, but it's more it's kind of like a it's a little bit bigger than those little teardrop picks but it's uh it's kind of like the shoulders on all sides oh okay sure sure i know exactly it's got a little wars that doesn't have the beveled in it's more smooth and kind of almost like a little bit war uh-huh. worn on the side yeah yeah and it's, it's really i really like it well um so you you do a lot of uh you have a camp you have a mandolin camp that you you do up um up there by your place how many years yeah. has that been going on now it's uh next year will be our fifth year wow so cool uh, yeah it's very it's really turned into uh, a really great thing. I, uh, I'd always, I've been wanting to do it forever cause I've been teaching these camps for probably over 20 years now Yeah, at different, all over the world really. But, uh, uh, got to thinking about it. I was, we played at grass Valley, California, uh, one year and, uh, they asked me to come out and do the manling camp leading into the festival, you know? And I, just one day I was, I thought, man, that's the, that's the, that's the perfect thing for me to do right here too, because they got this ocean lakes, ocean lakes festival that goes on, you know, that third weekend of August every year. And I could do it two or three days leading into that and do it. People that going to stay, could stay and go to the festival. So it could be a whole bluegrass, you know, week for them almost. So uh, that's how it started. And we started out, I think with the first year, I just went approached them about it. And I was, it was about two or three months to the festival started and, they were like, yeah, we want you to do it. I said, well, I was really asking like for the following year. <laughs> but, but, uh, they, they, so we do it and did it. And the first year we had 25, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah. Two or three months. And, uh, most of that 25 has continued to come every year. They just really, you know, I was hoping to cry, create a, a little commandland community and these guys who probably wouldn't otherwise have ever been, have what never met, maybe never met before. Wouldn't have ever met. You know, now they've become real bu- big, big buddies, and they're all, they're looking forward to coming back and hanging with each other every year. And they text each other all year about mandolin happenings going on, or what they're learning, or what they're playing. And you know, and then I didn't, I didn't think about the fact that I was gonna get to be good friends with these guys that I probably would never got to be good friends with. So I, I met some lifelong friends, you know, by coming to this camp. And this past year, we had like seventy. Did you really? Yeah. Man, nice. Congrats. That's amazing. Yeah. And so I've had a lot of different teachers. So I'm. You know, we have, which I try to expand the, you know, expand it a little bit. So we've had Don Sternberg the last couple of years. He's, you know, the great, 
uh, mainland player who studied with and played with Jethro Burns for so long. Oh he's yeah, a, he's phenomenal. I, I've talked with him a lot, t- lot of camps, and he's just besides being a, he's just got. I call him the total package because he's he, he's a he's a great guy, a great player, and a great teacher. I mean, you just can't go wrong with him and. Man, Matt Flinter is the same way. I had him this past year. and I interviewed Matt the day before he flew out to do that, actually. He was on the podcast last week, or last week but he um, I oh, interviewed awesome. him right before he was heading there. What a great oh, cool. He's a great guy. He's one of my one of my favorite players, too. He is just yeah. so he's, good, man. That's what I told, told him. I, I mean, I love – I've got so many favorite players. But uh, <laughs> yeah. having, those, having those two guys this year, I think they're a couple of the most tasteful players. I've ever heard, you know, there's everything they play. It just seems like it's, it's meant to be in that spot. There's no, you know, just uh, filler notes. Or yeah, whatever. It's kind of like you, man. I mean, like listening to your well, playing, I mean, you are like, uh, I mean, when you think of just great bluegrass players, your name automatically comes to my mind. I mean, you just like, every time I hear you play, it just sounds like exactly what should be there. You know what I mean? And, oh man, um, I appreciate that. Oh man, it's I, no, I appreciate your playing. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> and so, how would you, t- you know, what's? I think I have a lot of people who, you know, all all sorts of skill levels and stuff like that. And what would be some things if we could talk a little bit about like technique and some of the things that you've seen in all your years of teaching camp? Some some things that you know would help play. You know, one of the things I love about your playing is your double stops are are, oh, yeah. are great. You know, and um, and you 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 have a very fluid way of seeming to go from like single notes to double stops which i think is i mean for me it's always a little bit of a stumbling point if i'm working on something new you know you're trucking along and then you go to double stops and try to come out of it cleanly doesn't always right. doesn't always work uh, so right. i'd like to know <laughs> i'd like to know maybe what you do to to make it so smooth and some tips maybe uh sure uh well i think a lot of it comes back to technique i, th- I think you know you can obviously i've seen guys that i've told all, all these guys and ladies at camp uh that you know, I've seen guys with almost every technique you can think of that can <laughs> that can burn it up, and so I don't think that you necessarily have to have do certain things. But mm-hmm. I do. There, I think do think there's certain things that is are going to lend themselves to maybe a more uh, if you want to be a clean, real clean player. Mm-hmm. And not everybody wants to be that style. Sure. You know? But for me, that's what I always want. That's what I always heard and wanted to strive for, and I'm st- still striving to be. <laughs> uh, but. Uh, so for me, I mean, it really helps me. I, I kind of think of, you know, like, you know, the least wasted motion. So right hand, like, um, and I think it, hopefully that's one of my strong points is I, I've always kept my my hand in and I don't don't anchor anything on my right hand, which I, I, I think, and again, I've seen great players that do anchor. Mm-hmm. So, um, but for me, it just gives me a lot more. I feel like I'm, I could be a lot more fluid with my, with my playing because of that and the way I, and just being loose in my right my right hand and the way I hold the pick, that kind of thing. I see. I got sometimes I see a lot of folks that have a you know that that maybe didn't get any kind of, or at least ended up with a something that's this makes it a little bit harder with the right hand. Gotcha. Um, so I just try to hold it you know loose and I, but I do when I do start playing lead I do I will go to like holding it with a three finger kind of grip like it's almost like a pencil. Oh no, kidding! Kind of thing that I think it helps me feel like I'm more in control and can be a little bit more precise. And I don't know if that's, you know, that's what I always tell them at camps. I don't know if switching from two fingers to three in the middle of you playing, <laughs> going from a to playing the rhythm to a solo is and that actually the best thing to do. You could put an eye out in the front row or something. Maybe, but, <laughs> but, uh, hopefully, hopefully that won't happen. Right. But, right. Uh, it just makes me feel like I can get a little more precise and flow sure. over the strings a little bit better. So yeah, I do that cool. for my right. And then left hand, I just try to keep I've always or really just watching guys and, and also my cousin helping me and telling me about, you know, left hand technique. But I still, and I guess the first person I saw that really recognized it was like Tony Rice on guitar. It looks like his left hand just never leaves the fingerboard. Oh, yeah. You know, and he was so clean. I thought, man, not only is he like so clean, but that looks very cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's awesome! That, when that's awesome when that works both ways too. It looks cool and yeah, is right. effective. <laughs> right, and I've seen other folks play, especially maybe it's a little harder on the mandolin than it is on the guitar. I don't know, but I've seen guys that play mandolin that maybe necessarily weren't. Well, nobody's. There's not a whole lot of people that are as clean as Tony Rice, 
but right, uh, right. Uh, players that seem to be maybe not as quite as clean. They had a little bit more fly away with their pinky and, and, and ring finger, you know? So it just made sense to me to keep it. I could hit that target a lot easier if I stick keep them real close. So, you know, me being OCD, even as a kid, I would get it like next to a wall. <laughs> oh, no practice. Yeah. And like keep, to keep my hands from moving out. So I would just keep in the, you know, keep me get try to help my technique out as far as staying really close to the fingerboard. And I still do that. Like when I'm warming up, if I'm playing with the metronome real slow, I just, or play anything that I already really know really well, I'll just sit around and just, and just play and just think about keeping those fingers in there as close as I possibly can, you know? Sure. Sure. Did you spend a lot of time like breaking down tunes um, when you were younger, as far as stuff, like I that? did, and it was it was really old school style. Too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So how did you how did you go about approaching stuff? Because you do you do seem to have like a uh, a, a such like a great um, encyclopedia of licks. You know what I mean? Like even though yep, I, I really yep. you're just like an incredible bluegrass player, obviously, but you have other flavors in your playing besides straight up bluegrass. And right. so yeah, I liked it. Like how did you? You know, I guess how did you approach that sort of thing and and work all that stuff out and make it stick? Right, yeah. So back, you know, back then there was there was really no instruction. I remember when I first seen the first Niles, this guy named Niles Hokanen come oh, yeah. out with a book, and maybe '76. That was the first tab I'd ever seen. Oh no, kidding. so before yeah. and that was a Ricky Skaggs book, and I still got it. Oh, do you really? Cool, but, man. Yeah. But by that time, I'd already learned those breaks anyway. <laughs> just, ver- <laughs> just verifying you had them right. It's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, I verified maybe the tab wasn't exactly right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, because I listened to them so much. I mean, gosh, I knew I, I could, you know, I could hum through all the breaks by that time. But uh, so maybe in a way, I've always looked at it like, you know, I, sometimes I think, man, I would love to have had the amazing slowdowner when I was a kid. But Right, right. You know, maybe I wouldn't have spent so much time when I learned a lick. And like transpose it to all twelve keys, like I did. Yeah. If yeah. I'd had something else to learn, if I'd had like so many things to learn, like they do now, I may have just went to another tune and not even worried about trying to transpose, get these licks in there, in every key, and maybe learn something else from playing it closed as opposed to you know open mm-hmm. uh, lick or something. Um, but I used to <laughs> how I did it was I would slow down the records to sixteen, uh-huh. and then tape. If it's breaks that I really liked, I would just tape tape that break one time on a cassette at 16, then up to speed, then 16 up to speed. I'd do it like three times, so I wouldn't have to just keep right rewinding the 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 tape or whatever. So I had then I had to tune down my mandolin in order to get close to what it sounded like when it was slowed down. So you had to really want it. Yeah, bad. no kidding. So, but I think in a way it helped, you know, maybe in a way that was a good thing too, because it helped me, I think it helped me develop my ear because I would come, I would learn these as close as I could. And I would come, a lot of times I'd come back and know in a few months, I would think I must check this and see how close I am now that I've got, you know, I've got, I know I've got a good part of it. And sometimes I would check it out, you know, and I wouldn't be, you know, I'd be, oh man, how did I miss that? You know, and I'd. So I finally got it. So I guess it was de- it was developing my ear, you know, de- by doing that. But I've got boxes of cassettes still in my house that I had recorded and trying to learn breaks like that. What is the? Do you remember like one of them that maybe was the one that was just the drove you crazy? It took forever to get down. That you were like, oh, uh, yes. <laughs> I shoot. I don't know. There was a bunch. I learned. A, I learned that all that you know the Double O Forty Four album, like 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 that, and I. I I remember, uh, I don't know, I'm walking was a pretty tough one. Uh, that, I remember that break being a little bit, a little bit tougher than, than most. I remember, um, uh, then I, I <laughs> this is a funny one too. I would, uh, when I, where I grew up during the week, there was only one, there's a station in Statesville, which was 45 minutes away that played every third song bluegrass. So other than that, there was one bluegrass program that played two hours on Saturday night in Winston Salem, but that was pretty much it, you know. Right, right. And I, so the Jetty Crow album came out uh, that had Keith Whitley and Jimmy Gaudreau on it. it had She's Gone, Gone, Gone. On it. Great That's song. A, I, I taught that tune this year at one of my camps. But so when I first heard that, when I first heard that on the radio, I'm not, I'm not sure I was a teenager, I guess.
And uh, I thought, gosh, it's an awesome break. You know, Goodrow played. That's one. Of my, it still is probably maybe my favorite break of all time that he ever played. So good. But so I kept just calling the. So I kept calling the radio station back, you know, and I made like, so the, they were so sick of me calling, but every time I, they'd play it, I'd get a little bit more of the break. You yeah. Know? So I think they must've played it 20 times oh, that's before so I got, funny. I got really close to, to, so that's how I learned that one before I could get that. Cause I couldn't get the recording yet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh so my gosh. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> how, how did you deal with like the frustration of like, you know, that's another thing I think that people, you know, especially nowadays, like you said, with the amazing slow downer and sometimes the, the frustration or the distractions, like what was, you know, how do you deal with like a, something that was tough to learn to make sure you just stuck with it and just didn't throw it away and forget about it? I just, I don't know. I think I was just too stubborn maybe. <laughs> yeah. Cause I remember, you know, going back to those fillers conventions, I learned the break. I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've heard the break of, uh, that Skaggs played on the Live in Japan album on Bugle, Bugle Call Rag. Oh, yeah. tough it started pulling that high d string you know and i was i learned it and so we went to these fillers conventions and i thought you know i got i played it a bunch around home and everything i thought i got it you know <laughs> i'm gonna I'm try to i'm gonna try to, to play it at this fillers convention tonight or whatever and i remember the first time we played it i crashed and burned oh yeah <laughs> uh, on stage i was like dang it you know and then the uh, next time i was just too stupid it's too stupid or whatever to not keep trying so I got to play it another hundred times probably. And then the next week, I think maybe we played one and I missed it again. You know, I didn't play it the way I wanted to or whatever. But I think by the, the third Fillers convention we played it, I got it. Nice. And so I, I had it I had it after that time. So that, that was probably the one I can remember that took me the longest. Sure. Yeah, that's the thing. You got to keep doing it, man. Yeah, that's how, that's how you get where you are. You know what I mean? Is like you yeah. crash and burn. You're like, all right, I'll go back and work at it. And I'm gonna throw yeah. it back out there again, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's it, man. I, but that's that's one that gave me the hardest problem. I played so, I played so much back then. You know, after once I got to a certain age, I'd played so many hours that I could that I could play. Once I learned something, I could got to where I could play about anything I wanted to play. That's at that point. Right, right. Um, do you have any influences that would like people would be surprised by? Obviously, you're you know huge huge bluegrass fan a bluegrass player was there any stuff out there that you listen to that that isn't out of the bluegrass realm that's probably crept into your playing one way or the other oh yeah no doubt i mean i listen to all kinds of music and i mean uh so even in back in the day but i mean uh, going back to this funny because that's all that's all it was played at my house was bluegrass so i remember when i was like eight i heard buck owens and i thought man that's not bluegrass <laughs> i didn't know there was any other kind of music really though there bluegrass but so, so I got turned on to the Buck Owens, and I love Buck Owens and Don Rich and all that kind of stuff, and I still love that music. But, uh, but then I got you know playing mandolin, I got start started searching around, and I and I found out about Jethro, and uh, uh, and then that, then that kind of led me back to to Dave Apollon. Uh, I got and I got went to Tony Williamson and got some years ago, and got some uh, we did some of these old tapes of all these old shows, you know. So I tried to learn some of that stuff, and then. You know, then then when Grisman come out with that first uh, quintet album, oh, that just you know that just totally uh, that's all I studied for a long time. I mean, I was just so into that because I thought, man, that was the, that was the coolest melodies and greatest tone. It just it was so cool. I mean, that's just to me that's timeless too. I mean, it just still sounds great today. Oh, for sure. I listen to it probably once a week at least. Yeah, I mean, it's just so good and. Um, so then, and then at really even even before that, so the way I got started playing these triplet licks, I got, I met these guys from going to those fillers conventions. I'd always, when we played them, I would always go into the rooms. I would be looking around the schoolhouse and just searching for anybody that was a great picker. I wanted to play with all the best pickers, you know? So Absolutely. I remember one night we were in this old schoolhouse and I was walking down the hallway and I heard these guys playing and it sounded like Tony Rice, man. And back then, you didn't hear guys play like Tony Rice. That was before that whole craze for anybody got 
you know, anybody, no, just nobody was doing that except him then. And I went in there and there's these two, bro- two brothers, uh, Mark and Ronnie Edwards. Everybody called them the Rice brothers because both of, both, of, both of them had obviously studied Rice so much. So anyway, we got to be big buddies and we'd go back and forth to each When we weren't playing in a contest, we were going back and forth to each other's house and playing probably 10 and 12 hours a day on the weekends. And I mean, it was just crazy. But the old, older brother or younger brother, Mark, was really into electric guitar. So he, he was listening, he was playing all this Molly Hatchet stuff and all this stuff. And he was playing all these triplets and stuff on the guitar. And I said, man, slow that down. That would be so cool on the man. You know, so that's how I, that's the first place I ever heard those kind of licks was electric guitar and, and him playing it and turned me on to those, that kind of playing. So that's how I kind of started incorporating that on the mandolin. Cool. So, you know, this, yeah, so. this actually leads to um, one of the questions I always ask, and this might be a good one to actually make it a little bit specific is, and so, yeah. so if I had 10 minutes today to work on triplets, because triplets seem to be a thing that trip a lot of people up. Um, right. What would you suggest to do for ten minutes to start at to get to get triplets better? Man, it's just a, a lot of it's just this for me. I think it, I mean once you learn all all these different scales and notes, uh, the you know the the flat thirds or flatted seven. Well, I mean flat seven, whatever you want. If you want to make it sound bluesy, mm-hmm. you can add that into the licks, or you know. But it, it's really just it's the speed of getting in and out of it. So. I guess you know once you if you really get to where you can play regular eighth notes really really good and fluid, mm-hmm. then I mean I think that's that's you're pretty much well on your way to doing it then because then you can just you just think of it's really the ins and outs then I think that it may be the hardest but for me for me mainly I play those some people play them now I think and you hear a lot of guys playing them with a lot of pull-offs and I will do that occasionally but mm-hmm. for years I just pretty primarily just picked every every note of it do you do um when you do the triplets do you just keep an alternate picking or do you do like a down up down down up down down up down it's usually always alter, alternate picking okay cool cool Spark. yeah 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 so but you can start off you know with just an easy some kind of easy little triplet that's just part of a scale with the first I'll just tell everybody to leave out the fourth note of the scale. Oh, there and you play, go. Yeah. And play that kind of that play that that kind of thing. Yeah. So, Are there any other things that you would recommend besides maybe triplets? If somebody had ten minutes a day, again, you you've got so many years of teaching experience now that you would that you would have somebody focus on. You know, if they're you know uh, a lot of people, it seems like a lot of people pick up mandolin. You know, and you know aren't like us who play it for a living. And they just try to find some time each day to play just to get them to pick it up each day. What would you recommend? Right, right. I, I think a lot of it goes back, like I tell a lot of our students, it goes back to the, the double stops and and learning the neck because all the, the you know, like as you know, the shapes are going to keep repeating. Yep, yep. You know, for the most part, you can learn a lot of different, a lot of different shapes depending on what, you know, two notes of the chord you want to play. You may want to play a third and a and a seventh or whatever. But if you, it's a, anything to help you learn the neck. It's, it's just such a big part of it, I think, for me, because it's also movable. That's one of the things we love about the mandolin, the symmetry of the mandolin. It's just everything is so movable. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the that's one of the that's the beauty. I think a lot of the beauty of the mandolin that we can we can do all that. It makes one of the things that makes it the the greatest instrument on the planet. Absolutely, one hundred percent, one hundred percent agreed. Yeah, man, there's something about it, buddy. It's just it's the best. I mean. I just, yep. you know, it's I, I, for years, just I love it more every day. You know, it's just, yeah, it's the best. Yeah. I think that's where it's at. And practicing slow. Yep. You know, I mean, I know that's uh, everybody hears that, and I and I know I'm the world's worst because I'm I'm really into playing. I love swing and jazz, so I've been, you know, like like talking before, like one of my favorite. I love Stevie Ray Vaughan. You know, like kind of. I mean, he's my favorite, probably my, one in my all-time favorite electric guitar player. My, my so too, man. Stuff. Bonnie Raitt, I listen to all that stuff, you know. But I still listen to, you know, jazz, you know real jazz stuff. I listen. To, I just love jazz and that kind of stuff. So, I, me too. When I when I first learned something, I want to build any jazz tune or whatever. I want to be able to play it with speed right now. But I know that I know that I've got I've got to take my time with it and just you know make it take a few days or a few weeks to, for me to get it all under my fingers and play it up to speed. So I try to play it slow and, and, and really get it down. You yeah. Know? Do you have like a favorite jazz tune? 
Uh, gosh, there's so so many, man. Autumn Leaves is a great tune. Oh, I love that song, man. What a cool melody. Um, yep. How about a favorite fiddle tune? Do you have a, a favorite fiddle tune you love to play? Oh, man, I do. Uh, I've all, For years, I've played that Well, that one fiddle tune that's on the uh, on that in the Blue Room album is Wild Filler's Rag. Oh, yeah, I yeah, the, great version. I learned from the Benny Thomason version of that, and I like uh, Lime Rock is a great, great oh, tune. That is a great – do you have a recorded version of that anywhere? I don't. I've played it for years, but I've never recorded that tune. Yeah, what a great song. So, I love that yeah, one. Yeah, that's, that's a great version. And Mike Marshall and Daryl Angler have a, have a great version of that tune they recorded do. from many years ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, many years ago. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Alan, thank you so much for uh, for taking your time to be on this podcast. I know you're a super busy guy. You've been on the road. You're getting ready to leave. You just got done with your camp, and yet you took the time to uh, to do this, and I really, really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Daniel. I appreciate you you doing all this, man. It's, uh, it's, it's great. Thank you so much, man. Yes, sir. Thank you. And there we have it, episode number 14 in the books. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you so much to Alan for being on the podcast. Go to mandolinsandbeer.com, and you'll find the links to uh, check out Alan's stuff. He's got a great website with links to everything he has. He's also got an Instagram page. Thank you so much to Mandolin Cafe, who sponsors every episode. And thank you to Peghead Nation, who sponsored this episode. And next week, Steep Canyon Rangers' Mike Gugino is my guest. Take care, everybody. Check out that Spotify playlist. Cheers.